Habakkuk 2, 2 through 5. And the Lord answered, Write the vision, make it plain on the tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is ever never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as if he owns all people. We're going to stop there. We're going to hit the rest of the chapter next week. Um, In some ways, uh, this might appear at first glance to be a series of unconnected kinds of things, but it's not. Okay, we have to trust on that. Let's pray, though. Father, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. In a sense, they're mere words, but you use those words to change lives because faith unites us to Jesus. So I ask that you would use these mere words this morning to change the lives of people in this room, helping us to see more of our need and more of how Jesus supplies or meets that need so that we will trust in him whether it's for the first time or more fully. And we ask this to the praise of your glorious grace. A couple of years ago... uh, I was at the Y, which is not a surprising sort of thing. I'm there frequently. But it was during one of their fundraising times, and I hate their fundraising times. Because usually they uh, put this table out, and they make some employee uh, that you, you may or may not know sit at this desk or this table, and then try to solicit money from you as you try to sneak out. I mean, it's, it's, it's bad enough they say hi and bye to me when I'm leaving, because I, I just... You know, I guess that's just me. I'm weird. I don't know you. Why are you saying hi to me? Um, But this one time, uh, the person stopped me. And she was one of the ladies that worked in the nursery care, so she knew knew my family and knew my kids. And so I felt like some sort of responsibility to stop and talk with this particular person. And somehow in the course of this conversation, uh, she learned I was a pastor. Oh, that's so great. I go to church. Uh, and this, this conversation is getting much longer than I wanted it to be um, because I knew at some point there's money involved in this. Um, <clears throat> but it, that, it took a strange turn because she said that she had... Um, a prophecy for me. And she wanted to pray over me. And here we are at the why. <laughs> and I'm not wanting to blow this woman off. Um, and not really sure what to do about this. And so I let her pray. And it was something about success in the next year. And it had to do with the color red. I had no idea what this could possibly mean. That's often how uh, people tend to think about 
prophecy. It's, it's vague and uncertain. And uh, we're going to see, I hope, from Habakkuk that real prophecy is not vague and uncertain. Uh, that it addresses a, a, something concrete that is going to happen. And um, when it does, you know that God has kept his word. It's not something vague like the color red. Okay. Uh, it was not a vision of you, Paul, coming to me, since you're wearing red today. Um, <clears throat> Habakkuk has made a complaint to God, for those of you who aren't up with us, up to speed with us in Habakkuk. He's complained about the unrighteousness that he saw taking place within the nation of Judah, where he lived. Uh, God had responded that he was sending the Chaldeans or Babylonians to deal with this unrighteousness. And uh, as you might imagine, that did not sit incredibly well with Habakkuk. And so he made a second complaint, and we left him, as uh, so to speak, on the watchtower, waiting to see what would happen in response to the second complaint, and so this passage begins God's response to that second complaint by Habakkuk. How did God respond to Habakkuk's complaint? Now, when I complain, I hear silence, Uh, unless, of course, my wife is responding to me. Um, And you would probably expect to hear silence uh, if you were complaining to God. But of course, Habakkuk was appointed as a prophet, and so he has a different kind of relationship than you and I generally experience. God speaks back to him in his official capacity as prophet to the nation of Judah. And he's commanded to put this in writing. God says to him initially, write the vision, make it plain on the tablets, or perhaps better, inscribe it on the tablets. What is What God is going to say to Habakkuk in this vision that he receives is intended to be public, and it is intended to be clear. When we think about visions uh, within the Old Testament as well as within the New Testament, uh, we are to be reminded of a couple of things, and one of which is the prophet does not create the vision. If we remember from 1 Peter and then 2 Peter when we talked a little bit about this, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, the scriptures say, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we are to understand that Habakkuk at this moment is being carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's not a message that has its origination in his own mind and his own thoughts, but it is given to him by God himself. This is important, we see, from places like Proverbs 29, for where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. And that's precisely the situation that Habakkuk is speaking into. The people have um, cast off the law. They are throwing off all restraint. And so God is beginning to speak, not just through Habakkuk, but also through Jeremiah and some others, so that he might reign in his people to a degree. But the unfortunate reality is, of course, is that part of that vision that comes is that Babylon is coming. But there's that 
ambiguity, that question of, does that mean that all of us are going to die or just some of us are going to die? And so that's part of the, the important reality that's being addressed within this particular vision. He was to inscribe it upon tablets. There's, there's something here that's important. Uh, this means that it's certain to happen. There's an accountability that is going to be established by the fact it's going to be inscribed in a tablet. I guess you could always break the tablet, but uh, the important part here is that it's not something that uh, there's not going to be um, second guessing. Did he really say that? Is that really what the prophecy is? Yes, you could point to the tablet which was going to record the prophecy. But the idea of the tablets is also uh, an allusion, perhaps, most likely, to the Ten Commandments, okay, which were written on ten tablets of stone. Okay, There is a binding aspect of this revelation that is going to require response just as the Ten Commandments required response. They were binding, and the people were intended to live by them. This this vision that Habakkuk is going to receive was also going to be similarly binding upon the people of Judah and will require a response. Now we come to one of those places that are difficult to interpret or understand because one of the implications of this writing of the of the vision, so that he may run who reads it. Now, that's a little confusing. One of the reasons, uh, or one of the interpretations of this particular line right here, is uh, that this refers to the act of prophesying. And we do see places like Jeremiah 23, where running is uh, an, an image of what it means to prophesy. So Jeremiah 23, 21, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. Okay, so we have, uh, remember this is poetry, parallelism, so the, the second lines are explaining the first lines, they're moving them further so that we understand, so that the parallel of yet they ran is the same as yet they prophesied. So sometimes this image of running is used for prophesying. Doesn't seem to make sense in this context because he's writing it. So how are these two things kind of connecting? I have a difficult, I have difficulty grasping how these two things connect so that it's as if it's referring simply to the act of prophesying. Some have uh, put together the interpretation that there's many tablets and that people are going to run with them and spread the message. That they're going to be heralds that are bringing the prophecy through the, the four corners, so to speak, of Judah so that the people may know. Are people running with the message, or perhaps are they running because of the message? We'll hold on to that and get back to that later. But God wants Habakkuk and then the people to know that the vision awaits its appointed time. It will not lie, which is kind of interesting. Um, The vision will not lie, as opposed to the speaker not lying, 
I don't know. But Habakkuk needs to, and the people need to know that it is not going to come to pass immediately. There's going to be a short delay, uh, not going to be a lengthy one, probably only a decade or two. I know we don't think of that as short, generally speaking. But uh, for them it was, and for most people it was. But it's not going to come automatically. But they need to know that the God who appointed uh, the, the Chaldeans to bring judgment upon Judah okay, has also appointed the time in which God will bring judgment upon Judah through the Chaldeans. He appoints not just the, the what, but God appoints the when. They're not to think that God has forgotten his promise when it delays a little bit, but they are to trust that God will bring it to fruition. They're to trust that God is not a liar. That God is not a man, and therefore cannot lie, and therefore this, this vision cannot be deceitful. Uh, this week, if we paid attention to what was going on in the news, we had probably a, a serious amount of cognitive dissonance because we had a man who was convicted of lying to Congress, testifying in Congress. So we're to believe that now he's telling the truth. Now, obviously, not everything he said was a lie both the first time and the second time. But how are we supposed to discern when he's telling the truth and when he's lying? It seems like a big crapshoot, if you ask me. Okay. We don't have that problem when God speaks. We don't have to sort through, is God telling the truth this time? Can I, can I rely upon God this time? Or am I going to get kind of caught his word is reliable. His word is trustworthy. And so while it may not come about in the time span we expect it to occur in, it will take place. But what about the problem of visions? What, what should I think of this woman who stopped me in the lobby of the Y? Uh, am I to think that what she was doing was a good thing or a not so good thing. Well, if we go to Habak uh, not Habakkuk, Hebrews chapter 1, sorry, wrong H. Hebrews 1 reminds us, long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And so we could say, yep, Habakkuk, one of the prophets, one of the guys that God spoke to his people through, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And so uh, there came a point with the incarnation that God stopped speaking through all those prophets and began to speak through his Son exclusively and through the apostles that gave his message. 
And so during his earthly ministry, Jesus spoke, spoke publicly. But during his heavenly ministry, after Pentecost, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he did speak through his apostles. But those times are, I believe, done. We do have the scriptures. Uh, there's no need for the church to have additional revelation. What we need to know is already there. We're entrusted with it, and we're to believe it. And so this woman saying she has a prophecy for me, I already have the word I need. Um, If success is going to come to me, it will come. I don't need to know about it beforehand. Um, And, of course, then there's the problem of it didn't. She did set a time frame. It didn't happen. Or I missed it. But we see that Habakkuk's vision required a response And this gospel of Jesus Christ that that comes through the Son is also going to require a response. But in terms of that first question, how did God uh, respond to Habakkuk's complaint? We see uh, that God works to fulfill the vision that he gave at the right time. God is always going to be the one who fulfills the visions that he did send. Now, the vision itself begins um, with how not to respond. It's kind of an odd way of looking at it. What is the response? We see the beginning of this vision in verse uh, 4 with the behold. That's signifying the beginning of of the vision that God gives to Habakkuk, the one that he's supposed to write down on the tablet. Okay? Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. He he begins by speaking about a person who is inflated in his own estimation of himself. He's all that. He's the best and the most important, and all of the world should revolve around this particular person. But while he sees himself as great and grandiose, what really is going on is that he's twisted. Similar to the justice that Habakkuk talked about in chapter 1. The the justice that instead of being straight was twisted and perverted. There's a whole lot of something wrong going on with this person. Which leads us to go, who is he speaking about? Who is the he? Is it referring to Jehoiakim, the king of Judah? Well, we know this is true of him. But is he speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon? We know it's also true of him. What's going on here? I think that's, there's a amount of deliberate ambiguity that's taking place because God could have been incredibly clear. 
this unrighteous person, this twisted, puffed-up person, uh, is contrasted with the righteous, and so I believe it has to do with the response, the initial response to the vision or revelation. That there are people who are not going to believe what is being said in the vision. Prideful people reject true prophecy. Uh, It can be because they don't believe people have the capacity to tell the future. And in fact, uh, people generally don't have the capacity to tell the future. It's only if they're a prophet given a vision by God that they can accurately tell the future. So I would encourage you that if someone says they know your future, turn around and walk away. Don't entertain any of that. Okay. But in that context, where God was speaking through his prophets, we can, in our context, looking back at it, we should recognize that God is able and God was willing to speak through the prophets. We cannot dismiss them out of hand like some do, as though God can't do that. And yet, that's what unbelievers often do. Prideful people rejecting true prophecy. They discount God's capacity to work in that particular way. Prideful people think that they know all there is to know, and therefore this vision may not apply to them. It's similar to 1937. Okay, I'm not talking about prophecy here. I talk about 1937. But Martin Lloyd-Jones remarks that in 1937, there were a lot of people in his country of England saying that there is no way Hitler's going to go to war. Okay. The, appease, the people who were trying to appease Hitler and give him everything he wanted, he's, he's, he's not really warlike. Just give him what he wants. It'll be okay. Nothing bad's going to happen. And all it did was encourage Hitler with his notions of gaining more and more land and being dominant over Europe. Prideful people think they know it all. And so they don't receive what God actually does have to say. What's interesting is that the New Testament uses this verse three times. It uses it in Romans chapter 1, Galatians chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 10. Okay. Only in Hebrews 10 does it include the, the totality of this sentence, but still it does. Okay. And it uses it regarding the gospel versus relying upon works for salvation. Uh, That there are people who receive the message of God of, of how to be saved, but then there are people who reject it because they're puffed up and they're twisted. They shrink back, turn away from the message of salvation. And so there is, in a sense, a, a even though Babylon is coming, even though there's going to be judgment, there are going to be some in Judah who are going to be preserved through the midst of that judgment, but many will not. And it all hinges upon that idea of faith. 
who is trusting in God, who is not trusting in God. And so uh, Habakkuk begins with the reality of pride which blinds people to truth so they don't believe it due to their disordered souls. This week I got a phone call from my dad. I wasn't expecting a phone call from my dad. I had just spoken with him a couple of days earlier, so it seemed a little early. And it sounded from his voice that maybe something was wrong. Well, there were a couple things wrong, and one of them was my uncle. Uh, One of of the uncles that I knew best, uh, his stomach cancer has spread uh, to his liver. So um, now it's moved from treatable to terminal. What's Why I bring this up is because this uncle in the past has told me to keep my religion to myself. He's one of those people who, who thinks that he does not need the message of the gospel, that he's okay. And my hope is that this will produce a change of heart, that God will use this to produce a change of heart in him so that now he will be open to listening. Time will tell. But we see as we move down to verse 5, where it picks back up with um, this person, we see about wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. What we see is that um, unbelievers aren't controlled by God, but actually end up placing themselves under the control of almost anything and everything. And in this instance, Habakkuk mentions wine and greed. The vision-rejecting people of Judah, as well as Babylon, we'll see, were controlled by wine and greed. They never had enough of either one. They were consumed by wine and greed. We're going to see that Babylon, where this is, where eventually he's shifting at some point to talking about Babylon. Babylon was controlled by wine and greed. And Babylon then begins to be functioning as a symbol for all of those who turn away from God. We see Babylon is gathering nations to himself. He's gathering peoples to himself, but it's never enough to feed their lust for more luxuries. The world is not enough to satisfy Babylon. And it's not enough to satisfy anyone outside of Jesus. Because there is a Christ-shaped hole in our souls. And it cannot be filled with anything else. People try, but they continue to hunger and thirst, throwing more and more in there, more toys, more possessions, more substances, more sex, whatever it may be. They pour more and more trying to fill that hole, and it can't be filled. It's addiction and greed that killed Judah when God finally brought judgment upon them. 
He used unrighteous Babylon to, to judge unrighteous Judah. Well, unrighteous Babylon was also going to be judged. And addiction and greed destroyed Babylon. We had Mike read from Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar's Feast. The passage was too long, so we didn't get to the real important part there. Uh, well, not real important part, but the reality that there was one man who understood what the vision meant. And that man was Belteshazzar or Daniel. And he revealed what the message was, and that's part of why Belshazzar trembled. Now, this wasn't really great news. You know, the reward, okay, uh, the person who tells me what it is is going to be the third most powerful person in the country. Big deal, because that night, here come the, the Persians and the Medes, and they topple Babylon. That was quick. Because here are the hundred most important people in the capital city, drunk, and unable to respond as the Persians overtake the city. Just as addiction and greed destroyed those nations, it is destroying our nation. For instance, substance abuse. In America, it is estimated that 21 million people suffer from substance abuse. That's a pretty big number, if you ask me. 130 people a day, on average, die of just opioid abuse. Let's not think that all of these are, you know, strung out people with needles doing heroin. A lot of these are normal people like you and me who've had surgery and got hooked on painkillers. And it's a plague that is consuming us. As I mentioned in my pastoral prayer this week, uh, some of our legislatures have, have announced that they want to put forward a bill that makes the recreational use of marijuana legal in all 50 states. They want to decriminalize marijuana. Why? Because we don't want to feel the pain that despair brings. Debt. I mentioned last week that the, our nation is $22 million in debt, and that is just the government. Okay? The rest of us, uh, the consumer debt is $4 trillion. We at right now have the highest rate of car loans that are four months or more overdue than we've ever had. I did actually need the laser pointer. I forgot about that, Brian. <laughs> but we'll see, what we see how the debt has increasing, uh, but the debt makeup has changed. Uh, mortgage debt has decreased, while student loan debt is increasing. Credit card debt remains about the same. Auto loan debt is increasing. We want stuff, but won't wait until we have the money to get it. And so we spend and spend and spend. I think the average household has $14,000 in credit card debt 
at this point in time. So I'm not sure who's using my $14,000, but I hope, it, I hope they enjoy it while, while they can, because there's going to be a reckoning one day. Okay. Scripture warns us again and again about these things. Ephesians 5, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't let wine control you. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Christ has bought you. That's why. Because you're made to reflect the glory of God as an image bearer and a redeemed person. So don't waste your your life getting numb with wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. Ecclesiastes 5, He who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. If you love money, it will, you'll never have enough, and you'll always be working harder to get more, and you'll miss out on the other important aspects of life. Jesus warns us, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Warnings. Because these things deaden our soul. The unbelief creates a despair of that, the despair that's connected to that unfillable hole that we keep trying to fill. Uh, we stuff it with possessions and we try to numb it with mind altering, pain numbing drugs. That's one response. Unbelief cannot rest precisely because it rejects God's vision. So what does faith look like and kind of what does it receive? Because that's the other response. That's the, the better response. Habakkuk notes that the righteous shall live by his faith. This is the statement that Paul uses uh, in uh, Romans 1 and Galatians 3. And amazingly enough, this is also a very difficult phrase. <laughs> It has been interpreted in various ways, including the righteous one, referring to Messiah, shall live by faith. And that's not, I believe, how it is to be understood. I believe it is to be understood with regard to the person who is righteous, the person who's going to survive the judgment that comes, is the one who's living by faith. It's the righteous They're the ones who believe God's Word. They're the ones who would survive the Babylonians in that initial, immediate context of this passage. And I believe that precisely because of how the New Testament uses this phrase in Romans and Galatians. To turn away from our own works, our own righteousness, our own record, our own attempts of self-salvation, and to rest and believe that Christ is enough, that what He has done in dying on the cross is enough to remove God's wrath from us, that His obedience as a man is enough to satisfy God's requirement for our obedience, and therefore I don't have to add to it with my own obedience. 
that who Jesus is and what He has done is enough to deliver me, not from the wrath of the Babylonians, but from the wrath of God poured out upon sinners like myself. That is how Paul uses it in Romans and Galatians. Faith believes that we are in grave danger because Jesus is a righteous judge and we are sinners. And when a sinner meets a righteous judge, it's not going to go well. But faith also believes that Jesus is the only Savior of sinners. That this judge has laid down his life in order to rescue sinners. And that he is the source and the fountain and the flow of God's mercy and compassion upon sinners. And that he is not just able, but he is willing to save all who come to him in faith. Faith in God's word means that we run for refuge from judgment. And I think that's a, a good understanding of verse 2, that who is it that, may, that reads it and then runs? It's the one who's running for refuge because Babylon is coming. We see the same thing in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 where it says, when you see the sign, when you see uh, the blasphemy, run, get out of Jerusalem. Why? Because the Romans are coming. And they're going to destroy it. And so we see that the Christians listened to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. And when, the, the, when they saw the, the blasphemous standard of the Roman armies coming, they got out of town while many of the rebellious people who did not receive Jesus stayed within Jerusalem and perished for their sin. We see the same sort of thing happening in Hebrews. That there were people who were tempted to turn back from the simple gospel of Jesus Christ to return to the sacrifices of Judaism, to uh, return to the priests of Judaism. And he's saying, don't turn back. Continue to trust in this one who is greater than the things you can see, you can touch, you can feel, you can hear. Who's calling them there in Hebrews 10, just as Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians 5, to live by faith and not by sight. Faith in this one Jesus who we believe is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, but we don't see seated at the right hand of the Father. Don't live by what you see, but live by what you believe both the author of Hebrews and Paul are saying to us. We don't simply believe that there is a God, but, as Tim Keller notes, we are to believe what He says to us and act upon it. Run for refuge in Jesus. By faith, Similar to what we see in Hebrews 11, by faith we leave our sin, by faith we hide ourselves in Jesus who shelters us and keeps us. I want, I want you to, to think of this in, in terms of a house. 
with a coming storm. There's a picture there somewhere, if this thing wakes up. There we go. We've all been in storms, and storms can be very frightening. I remember one time uh, we had finished a field trip, and the bus had dropped us off at the school, and I had to run home in the midst of a thunderstorm. And I had one of those Luther moments I, I didn't, where it seemed like the lightning hit really close to me because it was like flash, boom. And that can be very dangerous. The winds and the rain and the lightning and everything else, you risk your life. Where can you find shelter? Jesus is the house that you need to get into in order to find shelter. But not only do you find shelter there, but you find perhaps a new change of clothes. Your filthy, wet rags are removed, and you are given robes of righteousness by Christ, His own righteousness. You are provided for. You might be cold, so you are given, you're able to sit by the fire. You're able to get the warm food, the soup that will warm your bones, all of these things. Jesus provides all of these things. He's not just the refuge in the storm. He's life itself. And so the ones who believe get life itself. Everything that is necessary for life and godliness are found in Jesus whom they receive. When they're united to Him, they receive all of this. From beginning to end, salvation is by faith. From that initial moment of believing and receiving forgiveness and His righteousness all the way to our struggle with sin, all of it is wrapped up in faith, this trusting of Jesus. And so He's inviting us consistently, constantly, to to trust and receive that newness of, of life that is life as opposed to death and destruction. And so faith rests in God's promise and receives life. Sometimes we hear faulty promises. Promises of success associated with the color red. Sometimes it's more significant than that. We can believe the wrong things, but when we believe what God says, we're believing the right things. And that's, those are the things we can entrust ourselves to because God Himself is trustworthy. And so to discard what God says is to place yourself in the path of destruction, to put yourself in the eye of the storm, whereas... To believe the promises of God is to find yourself in Christ, safe from the storm and enjoying life. And that's really what this passage is about. Initially, it's about the coming of Babylon. But we see that Paul uses it to talk about eternal life, not just physical life. Let's pray. We ask God that as the corruption of our flesh leads us to pride and empty confidence, that we might be enlightened by your word, 
so that we would understand how great and wearisome is our poverty of spirit, that we might be taught to deny ourselves, that we might present ourselves before you apart from any works and virtues, that we may not hope for righteousness or for salvation from any other source than from your mercy alone, nor seek any rest but only in Jesus, and may cling to you in the bond of faith that we might despise all empty boasting, that we may cast ourselves down in true humility, that we may be carried upward above the heavens and become partakers of that eternal life which your only begotten Son has purchased for us by His own blood. And we ask this in His name. Amen.